You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor David Whistle. The Second World War ended in August 1945 when Japan surrendered to the Allied forces. Well, that's when the war ended for most Japanese people. For one soldier named Hiro Onoda, the war would continue for another 29 years, until 1974. Onoda had been stationed in the jungles of the Philippines. As a highly trained special forces officer, he was able to live off the land for three decades. Now, when World War II initially ended, thousands of leaflets were dropped, announcing the end of the war and the surrender of Japan. Thousands of soldiers laid down their arms, except for Onoda. Onoda was trained in a samurai code of Bushido, which forbade surrender at all costs. So he saw the leaflets as clever, sophisticated enemy propaganda. Eventually, of course, he uh, was captured by the Philippine army, but even then he refused to surrender. He would finally throw in the towel when his former commanding officer was flown in all the way from Japan to relieve him of duty. Now, I share that because Onoda's story is a striking example of faithfulness. And faithfulness means or, or nothing or no one could pull him away from his duty. He was locked in on the mission he had promised to fulfill, and nothing else mattered. And faithfulness, it just means trustworthiness, reliability, doing what you promised you would do. And of course, faithfulness is a huge part of the Christian life. In fact, a life characterized by faithfulness is one clear sign that someone is a truly converted, born-again Christian. In Galatians 5, Paul lists faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit that evidences that someone belongs to Christ. So, okay, Christians, we need to pursue faithfulness, but how do we do that, and what does it look like? Well, thankfully, by looking at Paul's example in Acts 20, we find a charter for what the faithful Christian life looks like. In this passage, Paul gives his final address to the elders of the Ephesian church, a church that he planted and helped pastor for three years. And he urges them to follow his example of faithful ministry. Now, of course, in this passage, Paul is speaking to a group of pastors. So his most direct application is for those who either are pastors or those who aspire to be pastors. But Acts 20 is crucial for all Christians, not just pastors. Because we're all called to ministry, even if we're not pastors or deacons or paid church staff. Because biblical Christianity just flat out rejects the idea that ministry is just for the paid professionals. Ephesians 4 says the work of pastors is not to do ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So every believer has equal access to God through Christ. And God calls every believer to a life of faithful ministry. Now, this this is Paul's last sermon to the Ephesian church. So he doesn't pull any of his punches. And as you just heard, more likely than not, this will be my last sermon at RCC before Alyssa and I are sent out as missionaries to Japan on December 4th. So buckle up. We're not, we're not here to mess around this morning. I want all of us to be like Hiro Onoda, but for Jesus. Refusing to surrender, faithful to the end, to let nothing or no one pull us away from the mission of King Jesus, to be locked in on the ministry he entrusted to each and every one of us. At the end of our lives, I want all of us to be able to stand before Jesus together and hear him say, 
Well done, good and faithful servants. So on that note, here's our big idea for today. It's this. Every Christian is called to pursue a life of faithful ministry like Paul. We're going to explore that big idea by looking at, in, in this passage by looking at four traits of faithful ministers. First, we're going to see that the faithful minister is marked by integrity. Second, the faithful minister is prepared to sacrifice. Third, the faithful minister practices watchfulness. And fourth, the faithful minister is marked, or uh, the faithful minister pours their life out in community. So, first point, the faithful minister is marked by integrity. Take a look at verses uh, 13 through 17. These kind of set the, the context and the background for Paul's sermon to the Ephesian elders, which takes up most of this passage. There's a map up on the screen that will help you out a little bit. So, Paul is hurrying to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost because he knows that people will be gathered from all over the world for the holiday, and he hopes to be able to speak to them there. And so as Paul, Luke, and the gang are heading back to Jerusalem, they're sort of like hugging the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they're making these little pit stops along the way. And in the rest of our passage for this morning, verses 13 to 38, Luke records what happened in one particular pit stop at Miletus. So Miletus is a, a city that's close to Ephesus, so Paul stops there and calls the Ephesian elders to come down so that he can say farewell to them. Because, you know, Paul's in a hurry, right? So he wanted to avoid getting caught up in the hustle and bustle of a major city like Ephesus. It's, it's kind of like, let's say, like, I was headed to the mission field in Japan, and I had a long layover at BWI. So I call up Pastor Adam, like, hey, just, just meet me at the airport. I don't want to miss my flight. It's kind of like that. So the elders, they, they trek down from Ephesus to Miletus, and Paul begins his epic sermon to them like this. Verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, what's the most interesting about this for me is that Paul simply says, you know how I lived among you the whole time. Like, he barely has to go into detail to describe how he lived. He just reminds them of how they actually witnessed him living his life. Kind of if I was like, if someone was like, you know how Nolan is, you know how Shelby is, and then you complete the thought in your own mind, like, yeah, how they're like always serving others and pouring their lives out to sacrifice and serve others. Look, look at the descriptors that Paul gives of his ministry. Humility, tears, and trials. That probably wouldn't be a good title if you were looking to publish the next best-selling business book. Humility, tears, and trials, eight leadership principles to take your startup to the next level. That, that would probably be a flop if it even got published. Now, Paul does all this. He reminds his listeners of his integrity because it will reinforce the rest of the message he's about to drop on them. And we all want to listen to someone who practices what they preach, right? I remember as a kid, I had a dentist who had absolutely horrible teeth. And I'd be sitting in the dentist chair, looking right at his like yellow and brown teeth, and he's like, you have a cavity, you need to floss more, and you need to brush in those little circles. And 12-year-old me is like, who are you to tell me what to do? Plus, he had a bunch of pictures of sad clowns in his office, so it's just kind of an all-around bad time. <laughs> but in all seriousness, think of all the most powerful preachers today. People like John Piper, David Platt, Francis Chan, Tim Keller. You know something they all have in common? You listen to them, and you think, man, they actually believe what they're preaching. 
And more importantly, they actually live it out. And that makes you want to listen to them more. And conversely, there's unfortunately countless horror stories of pastors and church leaders who are living these double lives. They're abusing people. They're stealing money. They're having affairs. These stories are horrible, and they're so discouraging when we hear about them. And now, when those things are uncovered in those situations, suddenly none of these people's gifts matter anymore, right? Like, everything they've done in ministry is instantly discredited. It would almost be better if they never were in ministry. Because competence without character does incalculable damage. And so here's the truth that's dangerous to ignore. The presence of competence can often mask a lack of character. That's why in 1 Timothy, Paul warns against being hasty in the laying on of hands. It says, brand new converts shouldn't be pastors yet. Someone's giftings may be flashy, but it needs to be seen over the long haul that it matches their character, or their character matches. Because if you don't have holiness, you won't have a ministry, period. And I know something like that sounds harsh, but the church gets this wrong way too often. When we get this wrong, people get hurt. People turn away from Christ. The old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. But Paul, in this, in this passage, he also demonstrates here that integrity in our practice alone is not enough. He shows us that we also need to actually preach to people with integrity. Look at verse 20. Paul continues, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He, in verse 26, he says something similar. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So in a nutshell, what Paul's basically saying here, he says, for three years, whether it was in the pulpit or around your dinner table, I cut it to you straight. I taught you the story of the Bible and how it's all about Jesus. And he says, I didn't give you the Disney version of it either. Like, I walked you through all the controversial stuff you were avoiding, but you needed to hear. Paul says, I wasn't afraid to talk about sex, money, and hell. And most importantly, I showed you how you could be saved through Christ. So, with that being said, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you'd say you're open to exploring the Christian faith, I can't think of a better summary of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to become a Christian than verse 21, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To repent simply means to forsake your old life, to make a spiritual U-turn. It means to press exit on the GPS of your life agenda and to type in a new destination, following Jesus. And to believe means to stop trying to save yourself to do a spiritual trust fall. It means to hurl yourself onto Jesus' mercy, trusting that he will save you. And now a Christian is a person who has done this, has repented and believed in Jesus once and for all. And a Christian is also a person who will continue to repent and believe in Jesus every day for the rest of their life. Because becoming a Christian is not about like getting your act together. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not believing that you're basically a good person who kind of just needs a little spiritual pick-me-up from time to time. To be a Christian is to recognize that you're dead in your sins, that you're a rebel against God, trapped in the dominion of darkness, and that only Jesus 
can save you. So I don't care how hopeless you feel this morning. I don't care what you've done or what you've failed to do. Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. So non-Christian, we invite you this morning, we implore you to repent of your sin and believe in Christ, just as Paul describes in this passage. Now, what's interesting is that of the 10 sermons recorded in the book of Acts, this is actually the only one that's addressed to Christians. The rest are all addressed to non-believers. And so this is addressed to Christians. Here's what's crazy about that. Verse 26, Paul says that he's innocent of the blood of all because he declared the whole counsel of God. Now, when he says that, he's alluding to Ezekiel 3 in the Old Testament. In that passage, uh, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So what this means is basically in verse 26, Paul's warning the Ephesian church that they will face judgment if they turn away from Christ. These are believers he's talking to. What we learn from this is that it should be a normal part of your Christian life to have other believers challenge you and even rebuke you to warn you when you're starting to go off the rails spiritually. Paul says in Colossians 1 that the church is to proclaim Christ to one another, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, of course, we, we do this carefully. We do this with so much grace. We ask questions, we encourage, we apply the gospel, we give guidance. But my question is, Christian, do you have relationships like this? where fellow church members can encourage you, can hold you accountable, where pastors can shepherd your soul. This is one reason why church membership is essential, if you're a Christian, it's essential for your discipleship. This is why it's unhealthy to kind of play spiritual friends with benefits with the church, to just kind of indefinitely attend, get community, maybe even serve, but ultimately not have the accountability that formal church membership brings. Because the gospel confronts you with the reality that your greatest problem is yourself. We need to be rescued from ourselves, and we will never stop needing to be rescued from ourselves. And one of the means through which Jesus does that is when people submit themselves to the spiritual oversight of a local church. So, okay, the faithful minister has integrity in what they practice, what they preach, but the faithful minister is also prepared to sacrifice. Paul continues in verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." What did you say, Paul? He, you don't account your life of any value or is precious to yourself. All that matters is people knowing Jesus. Come on, that feels a little extreme, Paul. Like, what's going on here? Like, is, is this some kind of, like, hyper-spiritualized, morbid, like, death wish thing? No. 
Is this kind of like this Christian, like overzealous persecution complex? Not at all. Paul was looking to Christ, the one who didn't account his life as precious to himself, but gave it up for our sake. Which is why Paul says uh, later in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So for Paul, knowing Jesus is far more precious than any worldly accolade. It's worth any suffering he may experience. And Paul desperately wants others to have this same experience of knowing Christ. Because the truth is, every human being alive on planet Earth today is rushing towards eternity. And Jesus is the only way to heaven. And right now counts forever. There's no going back. So knowing all this, Paul's willing to face anything as long as it means he can introduce people to the gospel. The early church father, Tertullian, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And throughout church history, these famous words have proven to be true many times. Because Christianity often spreads most quickly when it's persecuted most fiercely. So this summer, I had the chance to visit, Oxford, visit England, and I, and I was in the town of Oxford, and I saw, I saw this in the town square. So this is a spot where the Oxford martyrs were burned at the stake by the Catholic queen, Mary Tudor, who you may know as Bloody Mary. And they were brutally killed, these martyrs, they were brutally killed for one simple reason. They refused to deny the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. They wanted to be killed for that. And what's really interesting is, unlike other places in Europe, the Protestant Reformation was actually really unpopular in England. I'm sure you know some of the story. King Henry VIII, he was on like his fifth wife or something, and he wanted a divorce. So King Henry VIII, he was actually a devout Catholic himself, suddenly and conveniently became a Protestant so he could get an annulment for his marriage without facing the wrath of the Pope. And then for the next 20 years, the England was, had a reformation that was very top-down. Like, it was forced onto the common people. And the people of England hated it. They were devout Catholics. But that all changed when Queen Mary ascended to the throne, Bloody Mary, and she reimposed Catholicism. She martyred about 300 English Protestant leaders. She had them tortured and burned at the stake. And the way these men and women bravely faced their gruesome deaths would change England forever. It would turn it upside down. The way one reformer, Roland Taylor, serenely faced being burned alive was stunning. As he was being tied to the stake, he said this, Good people, I have preached to you nothing but God's holy word and truth, and I am here today to seal it with my blood. Another Protestant bishop, Hugh Latimer, said these famous words to his friend Nicholas Ridley, as a stake they were both tied to as being lit. He said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust should never be put out. And there's a hundred more stories like this. 
and Queen Mary would die not too long after this, and the gospel of grace would spread like wildfire in England. What's crazy is that England was, at one time, the country most opposed to the biblical gospel, which the Reformation recovered. But it ended up becoming the place where the gospel most deeply took root. Why? Because these believers, like the Apostle Paul, didn't account their lives of any value, nor as precious to themselves. The only thing they cared about was testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And when people saw them putting their money where their mouth was, they saw the preciousness of Christ. They saw that the gospel really is the treasure hidden in the field that's worth selling all you have to acquire. And the same exact thing is happening all over the world today. You, you may know China is currently one of the places where Christianity is growing the fastest. So right now, 7% of China's population is Christian, 7%, which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that's 100 million people. And with the high annual growth rate of Christianity, by 2030, China is on track to have more Christians than anywhere else in the world. Now, that's stunning in of itself, but it's even more surprising when you account for the fact that China is one of the worst places in the world to be a Christian. So, how do we, how do we explain this? So, I have a friend, Grace, who's from China, and she's involved in the underground church in China, and she, she became a Christian because she heard the gospel while staying with the host family in the U.S., so she moved back to China, and she asked her mom, who wasn't a Christian, like, hey, can we go to church? And after a few months of church, her mom actually also started following Jesus. And the whole time, her dad was actively opposed to all this church stuff. He was a member of the Communist Party, so he was an atheist and suspicious of all religions. But eventually, after years and years of the faithful witness of his wife and daughter, he accepted Christ. He left the Communist Party he became a prolific evangelist. And he's personally led almost 20 of his coworkers and family members and neighbors to Christ. Grace told me, she said that her dad shares the gospel, tells people about Jesus with almost everyone he meets. Like, he'll be at the checkout line, he'll be on the train, he'll be at the urinal telling people about Jesus. I mean, captive audience, right? He was willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. And his example inspires others to do the same. Because Jesus is worth it. Verse 22 resonates with me personally in, in, in this passage. Uh, we're, we're moving to Japan soon to serve as long-term missionaries. Constrained by the Holy Spirit. Not knowing what's going to happen to us. Except that it's going to be hard. As you heard shared before, Japan's often called the missionary graveyard. And that dubious nickname is not because of persecution. There's, like, we're actually going on missionary visas, so it's not because of persecution. They, say, they call it the missionary graveyard because they say it's where your missionary career goes to die. Because generally speaking, the Japanese are uninterested in Christianity. I remember when I first met my friend uh, Takayuki, who's Japanese. He's a professor of theology at a Christian college in Japan. And when I told him, first told him that Alyssa and I are moving to Japan long term, he was shocked and he asked me, he was like, you've heard the horror stories, right? Like how church planning here is super slow and hard. Like how it takes years of patient evangelism for Japanese people to become Christians. So he's like, are you guys sure you still want to come to Japan knowing all of that? Alyssa recently put in her notice at her dream job at World Vision. And her boss was shook. He said to Alyssa, he was like, you mean your really going to learn Japanese from scratch 
And Alyssa was like, yeah. (laughs) And of course, on top of that, right, like not seeing family and friends for years, living in the world's number one, most ethnically homogenous country, where people will be nice to us, but we'll always be treated as just outsiders, visitors. That's all super hard. So in some ways, Alyssa and I feel the burn. We're learning what it means to sacrifice for Jesus and how it's worth it, how Jesus is worth it. But then I read about the Apostle Paul being ready and willing to be thrown in prison, tortured and killed for Jesus. I read about the English reformers gleefully being tied to the stake and burned. Or or I hear about my friend Grace and her family in China literally unraveling their lives to make Christ known. And I think, man, I'm a junior Christian. Like, if push came to shove, would I really be willing to give up everything for Jesus? And so, as I wrap up this, this second point, I have a really simple question for all of us. What are you prepared to sacrifice for Jesus? Non-awkwardness in conversations? A friendship? A comfortable, middle-class American life? How about your livelihood? your job? What about your life? May we all be like the martyr believers from throughout church history, who in the words of Revelation 12, overcame the world by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So in the first two points, we said the faithful minister is marked by integrity and a willingness to sacrifice. But third, let's consider how the faithful minister practices watchfulness. Watchfulness. Take a look at verse 28. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now remember, Paul here is speaking to the pastors of the church. And so this is an incredibly convicting passage for me as a pastor. This church, RCC, bestowed upon me the incredible honor of being nominated and affirmed as one of their pastors. And what's what's insane is this text says it wasn't actually people that did that. It was the Holy Spirit working through the people of God that did that. That's crazy. Now, I want you to notice, what's Paul's motivation for pastors to care for God's people? Like, why should pastors pay careful attention to themselves and the flock? He says, verse 28, because it's God's church, bought with the precious blood of his Son, overseen by his Holy Spirit. So in this verse, notice the work of each member of the Trinity, the Trinity, and the salvation of the church. What that means is, Christian brother or sister, you are incredibly precious to God, to the triune God. And to be a pastor is to be entrusted by God to shepherd the eternal souls of blood-bought sons and daughters of God. It's a weighty task because God passionately loves his people, his precious flock. And so lazy or abusive pastors absolutely infuriate him. I say that because some of you, I know some of you are here this morning and you have a past experience of significant church hurt. Or even abuse from Christian parents or pastors or or just other Christians. People who were supposed to shepherd you. People who were supposed to care for you. So here's an encouragement for you. You're precious to Jesus. And the, he, he bought you with his precious blood. And the pain you've experienced makes him angry. 
And most importantly, Jesus is seeking you out so that he can heal you, so that he can restore you from that experience. But what specifically are pastors to guard the sheep from? Paul continues in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice, Paul warns that the fierce wolves will not only come in from the outside, but also speaking, again, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says the fierce wolves will come from among your own selves. In other words, some of the wolves in the Ephesian church will be called pastor. <laughs> now, that's a scary category, isn't it? You could be in true church leadership, but not truly saved, not truly converted. Paul says in Titus 1 that false teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, at the very least, this should be a warning for us not to place false confidence in ministry titles or platforms alone. Like, I say that because some Christians ingest all kinds of goofy, wackadoo preaching on YouTube simply because some internet talking head has deputized themselves as a pastor or an apostle. And there's no shortage of TikTok Bible scholars out there getting their 15 seconds of fame with their shoddy exegesis but clever presentation. And Paul's saying here, don't let those people mislead you. We need to watch out for this garbage teaching. That's why he tells us in verse 31, he says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three days, or three, three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's a pretty intense guy. Three years of, of tears. Every day. <laughs> All day. So, with Paul's words here in mind, I want to briefly profile three common false teachings that I think RCC as a congregation should watch out for. We're an affluent church. We're in a highly secular city. So I think these specific ideas are ones that are, we are particularly vulnerable to given our context. And, and let me just say, like, I don't enjoy talking about false teaching. And I'm definitely not interested in cultivating like a, a legalistic culture of heresy hunting in our church where we kind of just jump down people's throats at the first little theological misstep. So don't be like that. Okay. But, but we do need to talk about this because the reality is there are false teachers that distort the gospel, that distort Christianity. There are wolves that devour sheep. False teachings hurt real people. They ruin eternal souls. That's why Paul warns us about it here in Acts 20. So with that in mind, let's consider these three subtle but dangerous false teachings. So first, the prosperity gospel. A group of theologians from all over Africa wrote a joint statement against the prosperity gospel. They defined it this way. They said, the prosperity gospel is the teaching that believers have a right to the blessings of health and wealth and that they can obtain these blessings through positive confessions of faith and the sowing of seeds through the faithful payments of tithes and offerings. So the prosperity gospel says that wealth is not a spiritual danger, that Wealth is something that Christians should pursue. And more than that, it says the faithful Christian will be healthy. And so if you get sick, they say, and you don't get healed, it's your fault because you lack faith. Or if you're poor, it's your fault because you lack faith. Now, why is this dangerous? Well, for one thing, it blames the victim, right? Like it tells sick and poor people that it's their fault because they didn't have enough faith. And to me, that sounds a lot like karma, 
which is the teaching of Hinduism, not Christianity. But on a deeper level, the prosperity gospel is idolatry. It exalts the gift above the giver of the gifts. Which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.9 that the pursuit of wealth is perilous for your soul. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, for each of these false teachings, there's not really people running around like, hey, I'm a prosperity gospel teacher. Like, no one's going to admit to that. So it's, it's more subtle. So with that in mind, let's think through some signs that you may be susceptible to the prosperity gospel. So if you relate to God in a transactional way, if your prayer life only heats up when you need help with work, finances, or school, if you treat God like basically a cosmic vending machine, you may be influenced by the prosperity gospel. Another sign is maybe the way you tell your testimony. Like if when you share your testimony, it's primarily about how God provided for you in material ways, and you have little to say about how you were a sinner in need of the grace of Christ, you may be subtly believing in the prosperity gospel. So Christian, reject the prosperity gospel in all its forms. It's really not a gospel at all. It's a false gospel. Second, a false teaching to watch out for, progressive theology. Progressive theology. So when I use the term progressive or liberal theology, I'm actually not referring to politics at all. Nothing to do with politics. Progressive theology is a kind of theology that is uncomfortable saying that the Bible is inerrant, that it's totally true. It rejects or redefines what the Bible says about things like homosexuality or gender. Progressive theology questions or denies the reality of an eternal hell or faith in Jesus Christ as being the only path of salvation. One theologian uh, summarized progressive theology in this way. He said, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Progressive theology. So what are some signs you may be vulnerable, you may be subtly believing it? Well, for one thing, if, if broadly speaking, you're just afraid of Christianity being countercultural. And so you tend to downplay the parts of the Christian faith that offend modern Western sensibilities. Like, maybe you don't flat out disagree, but you're just kind of embarrassed of those parts of the Bible. Like, you wish that God didn't put that in the Bible. And progressive theology, you got to know, it's, it's nothing new. It's the same demonic lies from throughout church history, just recycled and rebranded for a new age. Whether it's the Marcionites in the second century, the Socinians in the 16th century, the modern deconstruction movement, or the serpent in the Garden of Eden, there have always been those who pose the question, did God really say? So Christian, reject progressive theology. Don't be fooled. It's a non-Christian religion that merely utilizes the language of Christianity. So the third uh, false teaching to watch out for, easy believism. This one's very tricky. So, okay, what do I mean by easy believism? Easy believism is the idea that we can be saved without also being transformed. That all I have to do is pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into my heart, and then it really doesn't matter what I do after that. Like, easy believism kind of says, I can basically live like the devil and still expect to be saved on the last day. And no one should ever dare to question the genuineness of my faith when they see a lack of spiritual fruit in my life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, spoke on easy believism, which he called cheap grace. And he says this. He says, cheap grace 
It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Chief grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. Living and incarnate. And, and here, I said it's tricky. Here's why. The Bible clearly teaches that salvation isn't based on what we can do. Only radical and free grace can save sinners. But what easy believism or cheap grace gets wrong is that the Bible also teaches that those who have experienced, who have truly experienced the grace of God, will live transformed lives of love and good works out of gratitude and response. So the true Christian, of course, is far from perfect, right? But they're growing. They're running after Jesus, even if they stumble along the way. So Christian, reject easy believism and embrace the costly grace it is to follow follow Jesus. So faithful Christian, be alert. Watch out for these false teachings. Now, I'm sure by verse 31, the Ephesian elders were like, dang, Paul, this is a real drag. Like, I'm terrified and bummed out. And maybe you feel the same way. And, and we would stay that way if it wasn't for verse 32. Verse 32 changes everything. Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So after all these startling warnings, Paul concludes and basically says, Eh, God's got you. He so, Paul says he's sovereign over and above false teaching. He's sovereign over and above the sinfulness of man. Paul says the gospel is all you need for the Christian life. He says you don't need me specifically. You don't need any specific Christian leader to sustain your faith to the end. You have Jesus. He's upholding you spiritually every single second, and he will keep you faithful to the end. Christian, if, hypothetically, you could lose your salvation, you would. But the good news is that Jesus holds your salvation secure in, in his hands. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Christian, we need to be watchful against these false teachings, against falling away from Jesus. But we do that knowing that ultimately we're Jesus' sheep. We're held in his hands. And the good shepherd will lead us away from false teaching. His voice will call us away from it. So we cling to Christ, but with the promise that he's clinging on to us much tighter than we're clinging on to him. So the faithful minister is marked by integrity, is prepared to sacrifice, and practices watchfulness. We're going to start wrapping up, and let's briefly look at one more characteristic of the faithful minister. The faithful minister pours their life out in community. Paul continues starting in verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is an interesting note for Paul to end on. Paul's basically saying this. He says, I wasn't in this for the money or for the status. In fact, Paul says, you, could, you guys couldn't even afford to pay me. So I had to grind and be a bivocational pastor. But that's okay. 
Because serving the community, community that I love without expecting to receive anything, anything back is the way of Jesus. And it's the best way to live. And, and what, Paul, what Jesus and Paul teach, that it's more blessed to give than to receive, it's objectively true. Like, the data actually backs this up. To be blessed in Scripture means to flourish. It means to be happy at a deep level. Not a temporary happiness, but a deep flourishing of every aspect of your, of your life. And of course, who doesn't want that, right? That sounds awesome. Atheist psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he wrote a book. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. And, and the main idea of the book is that most modern people are pursuing the wrong things to make them happy. And so to illustrate this, he sketches two hypothetical demographic profiles, Bob and Mary. So first we, we meet Bob. He writes, Bob is 35 years old. Single, white, attractive, and athletic. He earns 100000 a year and lives in sunny Southern California. He is highly intellectual, and he spends his free time reading and going to museums. So we meet Bob, and then next we meet Mary. Mary and her husband, he writes, Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York, where they earn a combined income of 40000 Mary is 65 years old, black, overweight, and plain in appearance. This is important. He says, she is highly sociable, and she spends her free time mostly in activities related to her church. She's on dialysis for kidney problems. So these, are, these aren't real people, right? These are based on demographic profiles. But Bob, he's a lot like a lot of people right here in Canton, like many of you. Upperly mobile, successful. Mary is like a lot of people in West Baltimore, kept in poverty, kept in poor health by systemic racism and its effects. People that folks in Canton tend to feel sorry for. But here's where it gets crazy. Height then asks the question, who would you rather be, Bob or Mary? His answer, he writes, Bob seems to have it all. And few readers of this book would prefer Mary's life to his. Yet, if you had to bet on it, you should bet that Mary is much happier than Bob. Now remember, Mary is highly religious. She spends most of her time with people in church. In height, the atheist psychologist says it is objectively, measurably, statistically true that people who live like Mary are way happier than people who live like Bob. And some of you this morning are unhappy because you're doing everything you can to live like Bob. You're living for yourself. Everything you do in your life revolves around accruing more money, more status, more comfort. But it's not working, is it? Because all of your decisions are based upon what makes you happy. And so as soon as someone helps or stops helping you self-actualize, you bail on them. As soon as a city doesn't advance your career, you move. Which is why you're probably incredibly alone. Why you have no community. But the good news is that life doesn't have to be that way. And Paul gives us a vision for that. Look at the last three verses of Acts 20. He says, or Luke says about Paul. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Last month, our gospel community had a hospitality night. And there were members of RCC as well as people who 
uh, aren't Christians or who just don't come to our church. And so we're sitting around talking, and one of our members, Cherie, raised an interesting question. She said, do you guys believe that you have just one best friend and that's it? We all kind of shared our takes on the question. And then she said, I'm paraphrasing, I used to think you had just one best friend and that's it until I came to RCC. Now I have too many best friends to count. And I couldn't agree with her more. That's been Alyssa and I's experience here at RCC for the last four and a half years. Before coming to RCC, we were Christians, but the church was kind of like this nice accessory to our lives. People at church were these like nice, friendly acquaintances, good for our weekly small talk, but they weren't people you would find rummaging around our fridge. They weren't people you would find crying on our couch. Our plan was to use Baltimore as a stepping stone, to get what we needed for our careers and then get out as fast as possible. But God had different plans. Without RCC, I would have never considered being a pastor. We definitely would never have considered being missionaries. And now we have too many best friends to count. We've never experienced community like this in our whole lives. And it really sucks to leave it all behind. This passage, Paul talks about how the church was sorrowful. They would never see Paul again. Hugging, weeping, grieving. And that's how this last season is going to be for us at RCC. Because let's be honest. Alyssa and I will never see many of you again in this life. Sure, we'll, we'll send newsletters, we'll be back on furlough every year and a half, but it's not the same. It's, and for as much as Alyssa and I will cry over these next three months, we know that every tear means that we have brothers and sisters here in this church who know our deepest flaws and love us anyway, just like Jesus does. And so church, my encouragement to you as we close is this. For the Christian, there really is no such thing as a true goodbye. When Jesus comes back, when he brings God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, when he makes all things new, when he resurrects the dead and wipes away every tear, I like to think that we'll all have a picnic together and a glorified version of Patterson Park. <laughs> but of course, the best thing will be best of all is that we'll see Jesus face to face. He'll be there with all of us feasting together. And until that day comes, I'll say with the Apostle Paul about Redemption City Church, for what is my hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the fact that we were once strangers, we were once rebels against you, Lord, sin, sinners in need of salvation, and you've graciously opened our eyes to the gospel, shown us mercy, Lord. And not only that, Lord, that would have been more than enough, Lord, but you've given us a family. And I look out at these wonderful people, Lord, that you've bought with your precious blood. And I just thank you for them, Lord. Thank you for all the ways they minister to me and for just all the ways you've um, grown me through them and through their friendship and through knowing them over the last couple years. And so, Father, I pray you would preserve their faith. I pray you would keep them close to Jesus, Lord, and far from sin. I pray that you would protect this church, its members, its elders, 
from error, from sin, from heresy, from all these things, Lord. And, and Jesus, I know that I pray all these things with, with the hope, with the promise that your sheep know your voice and they follow you and you give them eternal life and no one can snatch them from your hand. So we thank you for that promise, Lord. And that's, that's a promise that makes me feel good about going, that you're still at work without me, without really anyone. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the hope of heaven, that for, for Christians, there's no, there's no true goodbye. It's only a see you later. And we thank you more than anything for the promise that we're going to see Jesus, we're going to see you face to face. And Father, lastly, I just pray for anyone here who's not a Christian. I pray that they would come to see that Jesus is the good shepherd who came that they would have life, and life to the full, life that's really life, Lord. And so, Lord, would you show them that by your spirit, Lord? And would they repent of their sin and trust in Christ and be saved, Lord? Forget about all the, all the hang-ups and questions they have, Lord, but I, I pray they would see the simple truth that Jesus came to lay his life down for them. And I pray they would embrace that this morning. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.